today my friends we're gonna deal with some major major issues some very very big things are going to be explored today we're not really going to have a choice Rabbeinu Bahaya is going to kind of set us off in a direction and it is going to force us to delve into some very 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 interesting and foundational tenets of our Jewish faith. Okay, let's get going. Firstly, before I begin, I would like to take a moment for station identification and gratitude. We are here broadcasting live from Chabad Flamingo, and today's class, today's episode in Shara Betochen, are Learning to Trust series, or Learning How to Live with Certainty, has been generously sponsored by our dear show member, Ami Meshlesh, to commemorate the yard site of his father, Reb Yosef ben Emanuel Zichrono Levrocha. May his memory be a blessing for his family and their future progeny. And may his neshama have nachas from the Torah that we study today together. And so... With no further ado, welcome to the 72nd episode in the actual study of Shara Betochen, Mindset. Now we've learned that it's a mitzvah for a person to make efforts to invest the proper amount of wherewithal and ability to providing for one's loved ones. And this is what Torah mandates. We talked a lot about that. We talked about why, in fact, it is the case, why it's necessary. And at this point, having identified a need for us to make that vessel, to create that mechanism through which we should receive our blessings from God, our livelihood, the Beinu B'chayat today is going to teach us how to have the right mind view, mindset, the right view. Maybe even you can call it an attitude. How should, I, how should I view the toil, the trials, the tribulation, the absolutely exhausting efforts that one must make in order 
to make a living? And there's an unspoken question. I don't think you'd pick it up if you just casually peruse the pages of the Shara Batachan. But if we think carefully about the thesis that's been painstakingly stitched together, Rabbeinu Bachaya has essentially already illustrated that the efforts we make do not necessarily yield the results we see. That is to say, a person can make a great deal of effort and yet have nothing to show for it. People can make at times small amounts of effort and reap extraordinary success. Those are matters of fact that can't be disputed. The total way of looking at it is that ultimately our blessings, any success and achievement that we're privileged to have is a blessing from God. We don't actually create our wealth, our affluence, our achievement, our accomplishment, or success. We make the efforts. In doing so, we provide, as it were, God with a vessel, a vehicle, a funnel, a pipeline, a convention, an envelope. You know, pick your choice. The idea is one and the same. We create the framework through which that blessing comes to us. If so, then all the efforts we're making aren't really of any value. That's extremely demoralizing. I mean, I'm making all these efforts and investing so much toil, and I may, in the end, have nothing to show for it? Well, that's a matter of fact. I, they call that business. So, if I'm to view the efforts I make as the thing I'm required to do, but not the thing that's really making a difference, am I kind of spinning my wheels? Wasting my time? Spending my life in a charade, playing a game that doesn't have any value? You see, if you believe, as most people unfortunately do, that their efforts and their success are the natural result of one another, that the toil invested necessarily engenders the accomplishment and achievement. So people say, well, I'll make the investment. And, and if it goes well, I feel great. Hey, look at, look at my investment. Look at, I worked really hard and I can flex my muscle and say, yeah, I achieved it. I, I did it. I did it. And what happens if you toil and expend effort and you fail and say, well, I failed this time, but next time I'm going to ace it. You see, next time I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work even harder and I'm going to have success. So we may not be guaranteed success, but commensurate with our efforts will come to achievement. So people feel good about the efforts they're making because the efforts they're making directly result in the success, in the results. But Rabbeinu Bachai came along and he said, disabuse yourself of that idea. It's not true. Don't fool yourself. Don't say, I'm quoting scripture. That's straight Deuteronomy. Don't say, my valor, my efforts, my 
investment is what resulted in these magnificent results or brought about this fantastic success. Wrong! You made the effort. You made the Kaylee. You all but provided a vessel, a pipeline. The beneficence, that's from God. If so, the effort is essentially a waste of time. That means most of our life, or a significant portion of our life, is a waste of time. It is precisely this issue that the Shara B'tochen is now going to address. So, we talked about how one goes about choosing their occupation, and that there's a need to kind of be mindful. You can't just say, well, i got to do something, so I do anything. No, 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 no. You do that which lends itself to you naturally. You do what's right. And if you do what's right, and if you lend your natural talents, wherewithal and ability, and the realities around you kind of harness those to the plow of occupation or the driver need for you to do your part, then you know you're doing the right thing in what we call the Torah worldview. If so, how would the Torah want me to view the actual efforts I make? Because <laughs> I'm only choosing a particular vocation because it seems amenable to my talents, to my abilities, and then I wait for Hashem to send success through those, those, those efforts after I've invested them, after I've made them, what should I think about when I'm working hard? So Rabbeinu Bachaya, in this eye-opening, positively enlightening fashion, is going to tell us that despite the fact, and I cannot overemphasize this, despite the fact that our efforts do not result in the success that we might achieve or enjoy. Nonetheless, those efforts are extremely meaningful. They're important. They make a profound difference in our lives. And the obvious question is why? If the efforts don't actually accomplish anything anyway, if this is anyway just going through the motions, what was the point? Says the great Rabbeinu B'chai of the Shara B'tochen V'yechavein B'tir Deslibe V'gufei. Here's what he should be focusing on. Here's what his intention should be. The word kavana is freely translated as intention. And I can't even tell you how frustrating I find the English renditions of the Shara B'tochen who don't even bother translating the words. It's mind-blowing to me. Nobody translates the word v'yechaven. V'yechaven is like kavona, like intention. When you daven, when you pray, you're supposed to pray intentfully. Not just read words, not turn pages, not murmur with your lips. You can do all those things. You're supposed to be saying the words, and if you're very familiar with them, you might murmur them. You might be able to enunciate them quickly. It's a good idea to look in a prayer book in a siddur, even if you know the prayers by heart, so you'll turn the pages. And you'll say the words. That's great. But that's not 
what we call praying. That's not davening. Those are the mechanisms of davening. What is prayer itself? Prayer is the service of the heart. Prayer is or opens with bakoshas tzrachov, with us actually speaking to God. Firstly, being mindful that we need to ask for whatever we get because everything comes from God. And that mindfulness is supposed to lead us to humble ourselves before God and to yearn to achieve a deep, meaningful connection with God, an emotional connection, less pulchana kepulchana drachamisa, our sages taught. There is no toil, no effort like the toil of heart. Like the labor of love. That prayer is supposed to be a representation of. So we should pray intentfully. Kavana, intention in prayer is an extremely important and critical part of that activity. It's been noted that the word kavana, freely translated as intention, lines up with the Hebrew word lechavin. To make it easy, when a person is aiming the barrel of a gun or a bow, or a person intends for something to happen. So then that's their kavana. That was the intention. A person might say, Tichaven al-hamatara in modern Hebrew. Aim at the target. You have to take aim. You got to focus. You got to kind of clear everything else out. Focus exactly on the target you're trying to hit. Or somebody might say something or do something and you would say, what was the kavana? Like, what was your intention? Were you trying to convey a message? Were you trying to be hurtful? Like, what was your intention? It's a fair question to ask sometimes. So these are the meanings of the word lechaven, to take aim, to have an intentful, like a purposeful focus. Says the Shara Betochen, that when it comes to tirdat libo v'gufo, when it comes to the tirda means really the burden. I, you can look inside the Kahat book if you want, but like, I'm beyond disappointed. It's, it doesn't translate. It's not translating the words, and the commentary has virtually nothing to do with the actual subject matter in the body of the book itself. So <laughs> you can use it as a point of reference on page 103. And a person should take focus, take aim, should in, be intentful. Betirdat libo. What is a tirda? A tirda is something which can be a worry, a burden, something that weighs on a person, something that takes up space on your proverbial hard drive. When we talk about libo vegufo, we're talking about mental or emotional exertion. We're talking about physical exertion. We've discussed earlier the different kinds of work, both can be utterly exhausting. The therapist who spends time speaking to people, trying to understand their problems and helping them work their way out of it, is exhausted after several sessions. It's a mentally and emotionally taxing thing to do. So is bricklaying. Not, a mentally, not emotionally, but physically. 
So there are things which are physically taxing. There are things which are emotionally taxing or mentally taxing. And we use the word libo instead of mocho because a person gets engaged, gets involved. The moach can be, the mind can be aloof, indifferent. You can't be indifferent when your heart's in it. If you put your heart into it, if you're, then you're engaged. And then it's always going to be taxing. Thinking about things don't have to be taxing. Engaging in something is invariably going to literally take a lion's share of your strength. It gobbles up every ounce of wherewithal. So what should a person be thinking about during the tirda, during this, this taxing, burdensome engagement involvement? Involvement in, in what? Ah, besiba min hasibot. We hear, we speak about the means. We've talked about this in great detail. This is one of the words that uh, Ibn Tibbin, Abihudi Ibn Tibbin chose. I don't know what the original in Hebrew Arabic was, but the siba literally translates in Hebrew as the cause, but really here it's meant as the means. Like the cause, the cause and effect, the means to obtaining a living. So let's say you have a particular means. Whatever vocation, whatever your occupation or career is, you're right now involved in a particular mean, you're, you're, you're in a particular cause, you're trying to achieve something. Whether you're a salesperson and you're trying to make the sale, so you're putting on your best smile and you're involving every ounce of wherewithal and trying to be as convincing as possible and you're making the best presentation you can. Or whether your job is to argue the case in a court of law. It can also be very taxing. It's a different kind of taxing. Whether your job is to be loading heavy boxes. That can be very taxing. Digging trenches, pouring foundations. Whatever it might be, the point is, besiba min asibas, in the specific, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the actual means, the, the detailed means. Vahasibov aleha. And the word sibov means like kind of like the circle around it, like the pursuit of it. So you're going in a direction, you're doing these things in order to achieve something. And, and I'm saying to myself, what am I doing? I'm wasting my time. I'm killing myself. I have so much taxing, exhausting work to do, and it's not even achieving anything. It can be positively maddening. This faith business, this trust idea that we're supposed to trust in Hashem, and we're supposed to know with absolute certainty that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that Almighty God, is the one who provides us with a livelihood. So what am I killing myself for? What should I be thinking during that time? Ah, says Rabbeinu B'chayyeh. During those efforts, Yechaven, you should focus on what? Not on the success. Not on the destination. Not that this is a means to an end that I really could care less about what I'm doing and I shouldn't have to be doing this and it really stinks that I have to be involved in this, this awful business, but what are you going to do? Got to do it. You got to make a living. So, put the clothespin on, ignore the stench, and uh, smile to whomever you have to smile, bow to whomever you have to bow, knock yourself out, because whatever, it is what it is. And you know what? The main thing is, you'll be able to pay your bills and go home, and th- then, then that's where life begins. This, that's, 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 what, that's what it's really all about. This is, this is just a, an awful means to an end. Which means there's not so much end, and a lot of means. Our life is filled with means. 
That's not exactly an inspirational way to view the vast majority of our waking hours or the many, many, many chunks of time that we invest in the pursuit of a livelihood. So Rabbeinu Bechaya says, you're supposed to be focused on one thing, and it will give you a sense of fulfillment. La'amayd b'mitzvahs habayra. In doing all of this, you essentially are fulfilling, standing in the role. With la'amod means to stand. You're standing in the position of mitzvahs habayra. I'm fulfilling the will of the Creator. Hashem gave me this mitzvah. Hashem gave me a mitzvah to work. Yeah. Shetziva ha'odom, God gave a human being the commandment, lihit asek besibot ha'olam, to involve oneself in the means of the world. Ka'avaydas ha'adomo, like, for example, and this is only a paradigm, working the earth, chadishoso, zriyoso, plowing, sowing. Kameshakosov, where did you get a mitzvah called plowing and sowing? I know, when I plow and sow, I have certain mitzvahs. I'm not supposed to plant mixed species together. No, 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 no. There's a mitzvah to plow and sow. Really? You mean if we're not farmers, we're violating a mitzvah? Well, not exactly, but if you do nothing, you are actually violating your purpose. Because as human beings, we are all descendants of Adam and Eve. And when Hashem created the first human being, who was before this division or separation into two genders, a single gendered human being known as Zachar Unakeva Bara Oisai, he was created with two sides, a male side and a female side, unlike the rest of creation, all other forms of life that have male and female genders were created initially with male and female genders. Only humanity is tasked with the mandate of coming together in wedded bliss in marital bond. Only we have to toil at making a marriage work and can appreciate the glory that it offers. The animals mate. They don't marry. They procreate. They don't build relationship. One bull can sire many calves. But that's the end of his involvement. For a man to sire many children is not exactly a pretty thing. That's not what marriage is about. We are not bulls or donkeys. We are people. And as people, Hashem expects us to marry and to be loyal and loving to our spouses. It's a very different kind of life we human beings have. So God tells the first human being before he divides it, and then instructs it to spend the rest of its history trying to get it back together. It says in the Torah, God took the person, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, He placed him in the garden of Eden, 
to work and to guard or safeguard this beautiful garden that God had created. And so Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar seems to be saying that from the very beginning, humanity was tasked with doing a job, with working. So when you're working, whether you're a farmer or a stockbroker, whether you work in a back-breaking or mentally exhausting, emotionally wrenching fashion, whatever it is that you're doing, you are fulfilling the original divine mandate to humanity, which was la'avda ulashamra. You need to safeguard things. You need to work at them. You need to make it happen. And therefore, Rabbeinu Bachaya says, whatever it is that we utilize, anything around us is not for a selfish purpose. We should not see our relationship with animals or furniture, with machines or fellow people. We shouldn't see these things as opportunities for us to manipulate our reality, the reality around us so that we can get what we want, meaning it's all about us. But instead, we should understand that whatever it is we utilize, we utilize purposefully because Hashem, Almighty God, ordained it to be that way. He told us to. Some of the language here is going to be a little bit difficult. I'm getting, giving you a warning in advance before I come back to the major point there. When a person works or utilizes animals, once upon a time people used animals for purposes of transportation or working the fields, whether you harness the ox to the plow or ride the dromedary, the donkey or the horse, it's, it's just all a metaphor. People used to have animals and they had a purpose for it. They served a purpose. And the ultimate purpose had to do with humanity serving its purpose. And humanity serving its purpose means to utilize the animals around us, the binyan hamedines, to build society, to build settlement. Hachonas hamazonis, to ensure that we are provided for. Not just you are provided for. That everything leads to a sense of prosperity. The next few words are very, very unwieldy and difficult for modern people in the 21st century, but I'm not going to mince words as all the translations I saw mistranslate this and like as if nobody speaks Hebrew and knows the truth. Let me tell you what it says. Let me tell you why you're not going to like it. I don't have to tell you, you're not going to like it, but I'm going to explain to you what I think it means and why you're making a mistake of getting yourself bent out of shape. Quote, lihishtamesh benoshim, to use women. That's literally what he says here. It's written a thousand years ago. <laughs> they, were, they were perfectly fine with this. Whoever was reading this a thousand years goes, yeah, that sounds about right. So that's what he says. And to be intimate with them, to procreate, to increase one's, one's progeny. What does this mean? So the truth is that Hebrew doesn't translate well into English. And the word lihishtamesh sounds like using, you know, like a user. You use somebody and you throw them away. It, it, it denotes abuse. It denotes lack of respect. It denotes a certain smugness, almost an arrogance, looking down at somebody or something. I need to use you. But really, despite 
the bad rap that the word use has, the proper word should be useful. We all want to be useful. How do you feel when you're useless, purposeless? It happens to be one of the most debilitating and demoralizing states of being for any human being to be useless, to simply exist. Everything in life should be useful or purposeful. Not only useful, but having a purpose. So what is the reason for love, romance? Let's agree firstly that the Shara B'tachin wrote his work addressing men because there were very, very few women in his time who were capable of reading and understanding this. That's an that's a unfortunate fact. We, can't, we, can't, we, can, we can fool ourselves and tell us otherwise, but in fact, it was not the case. The vast majority of women, including Jewish women, were not very well educated at the time. And their service to Hashem was more as an adjunct kind of, their husbands would do that work and everybody had their job and their mission. Women were, in antiquity, or certainly a thousand years ago, much more simple. There were always exceptions to the rule, but this is, was the case. It's not the case anymore. It's not the case anymore at all. There was our Rebbe who pioneered the idea, not of shluchim, his agents or emissaries to make the world a better place, and their wives, but as shluchot. The rabbi is a shliach. The woman is a shlucha. The Rebetzin is an agent, an ambassador, a representative of the Rebbe in the same way. And men and women have different roles and different milieu, different methodologies. None is more or less important. Equal doesn't mean homogeneous. Equally important means different, but equally important. So in today's day and age, there's no doubt in my mind that the study of Shara B'tochen is as important for Jewish women as it is for men. There's no doubt in my mind Men and women have the same responsibilities of emuna and betochen. It is said, I didn't live at this time, but it is said that once women were much more naturally spiritual and they didn't have to work on these things. It was the men who were more engaged or involved in the sophisticated slash confusing big bad world that limited and inhibited their ability to have faith and to trust in Hashem. This is, in fact, captured in the words of a medrash that speaks about the Exodus. It says that in the merit of the emunah, in the merit of the faith and trust in Hashem of Jewish women, we were redeemed from the land of Mitzrayim. And one of the paradigms that illustrates the greater level of faith and trust, that's an important Distinction, because faith can be atmospheric and not change the way you live. Trust is when you download the faith into your actual operating system. One of the paradigms that illustrates this was the men's singing of Az Yashir, led by Moshe Rabbeinu, was a cappella. Why don't they have uh, music? Because you need to prepare music. And the men didn't have enough betochen. But the woman came prepared with musical instruments. So when Miriam leads the women in song, their song 
is much more profound and exquisite because it's not only with a voice, but also with musical accompaniment. How is, how's that? Our sages tell us because they trusted that Hashem would bring miracles for them and they prepared the music for the song they would sing when they would experience Hashem's deliverance. That sounds pretty chauvinistic, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, sure. It's like a chauvinistic way to look at, at women saying that they have more faith in Hashem and that they sang a better song. Okay, I don't think it's chauvinistic, actually. I don't think chauvinism is a negative thing. There's nothing negative in Torah. The Torah looks at the truth, the godly truth. We may need to understand the godly truth and work hard at appreciating it, but it is not chas negative. And by the way, the Torah doesn't need to be engineered by people who are smarter than God, who know better than God. Okay, so the Shah Batachan's writing to men, so he uses the term Lehishtamish Benoshim to utilize, to make use of women. But the truth is in today's day and age, this goes both ways. Incidentally, the word Noshim in in Torah uh, literature is is a is a broad word that's used for matrimony. It's an entire section of Mishnah that deals with the laws of marriage, and it's called Noshim. It's called women. But it's, it's not about women any more than really it's about men. It's about matrimony. So lehishtamish benoshim could also, by extension, mean to utilize marriage. Although literally it means woman here. There's no question about that. The point is, why do we get married? For our own selfish expression? Because we love to be with somebody? Because we don't want to be alone? because we found somebody who compliments us, we found somebody we can get along with, we found somebody we can share our lives with, because it's good for us? Or because there's a purpose to everything? The Torah view on everything we do is that all of it is purposeful. There's nothing empty or vacuous, nothing devoid of meaning. Everything is purposeful. That is the primary thrust of Rabbeinu Bachaya's extraordinarily enlightening message. The message is that although your toil, although your effort do not lead to the result, your success is not the direct result of the toil you invested, Nonetheless, the toil is meaningful because it is a fulfillment of a divine mission that God gave us. We, as people, are supposed to work hard. We're supposed to live purposefully. We're supposed to utilize every iota of existence, every detail of possibility. We're supposed to use life well. It's a gift. Not to be wasted. So when you view it from that perspective, which I believe is the truth, this is not abusive. It doesn't say to abuse chas v'shalom. It says it's purposeful. Our marriages are purposeful. It doesn't mean they're utilitarian. It doesn't mean that there's no love and romance. If you look at the blessings of matrimony, which were coined 
by our sages in antiquity, thousands of years ago, at least 25 centuries ago. We speak about Ava, the Achva, Sholem Vereus. We speak about love. We speak about a kindred sense of almost replication, like, like sibling, what they would call in English brotherly, but it's not more brotherly than sisterly, like a sibling-like unity. We talk about peace. We talk about friendship. Those are all things that are supposed to be found in the framework of marriage. That's not utilitarian, but it's purposeful. Our love and lovemaking has to be purposeful. An example is for the purpose of procreation. Incidentally, the Reish's Chachma speaks a lot about this, and it's found in many places. It doesn't mean that every time one engages in intimacy, it has to be for the purpose of making, so to speak, a child. There comes a certain time in people's lives where they're not in the baby-making business anymore. It doesn't mean that they're not supposed to be intimate. It doesn't mean they're not supposed to experience that dimension of life that Hashem granted each and every one of us, and it's a gift, and it's an opportunity, a springboard for exceptional holiness. But it's a paradigm of purpose. So Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar's message to us is that when we are toiling, slaving away, being wasted by, exhausted by the efforts that seem to be purposeless, that actually they're purposeful. That's the divine purpose. Hashem wanted us to work hard. That's a good thing. Hashem created the human being. He placed him in Gan Eden. To do what? To sit back relax and enjoy? That's not what the scripture says. That's not the way God described being in the idyllic Garden of Eden. He described it as being purposeful. To work hard, to safeguard. And as such, says Rabbeinu Bachaya, when we understand that as the Tov Halavonon puts it, puts it, Tirchato bivakashat hasibot, the toil, the effort. Tirch is a burden, the burdensome effort. In the means, hamevium hateref. That the effort that we are doing, as the Marple and Ephesus says, lachazar achareza to pursue an opportunity. An opportunity knocks, and you run after it, and you pursue it, and it turns out to be nothing. So, how do you view? the last three weeks where you pursued a venue, an opportunity to make a living, and it ended up being a waste. In the end, you made nothing for it. A waste of three weeks? No, says Rabbeinu Bachaya. That's the purpose. For whatever reason, Hashem wanted you to toil and to make effort. And He decided that's not the way He was going to give you the livelihood that you need. He's going to give you what you need. Hashem promises that He will give us what we need. We have to have trust and live with certainty. We will have what we need. We may invest a month's work of pursuit after a particular means only to find it come up with a big fat zero. Nothing. And then, the next day, boom. 
everything turns around. Not from the effort we made, from something that we even forgot we did. So what was the point? <laughs> what is God torturing us for? He drove me crazy. I was following the Torah instructions. He said, follow an occupation. Choose your career. Seize the moment. I did all those things. I worked so hard and nothing. And then my livelihood came from somewhere else. It means I went through half my life wasting my time. Why couldn't God just give me the prize? If it wasn't going to be the result of my efforts anyway, the answer is, you were doing a mitzvah all along. It's not about the destination. It's about the journey. When you were toiling, when you were involved in that taxing, challenging effort, what were you thinking? Were you thinking about Hashem, about God, about your duty and responsibility towards your Creator, about missionful, purposeful life? Or were you thinking about something else? Because that mindfulness or mindset makes all the difference. Listen to the way the Nehdebar Kodesh puts it. He says something so sweet. You know, here in the Kiyat edition, he writes, when a person's body and mind are occupied, it's not when. In the art scroll is disappointing here. While occupied. That's what he says. I mean, the art scroll is closer to the proper translation. At the time when you are engrossed, burdened, overwhelmed, challenged, you know, we all have moments like this. At the time when you're totally subsumed into whatever it might be, of course, in the Torah way, it's the right thing to do. Stop and think. Mindset, mindset, mindset. What am I doing this for? Why am I making these efforts? Yechaven, a person should be intentful, should be mindful. I am now doing an act of holiness. I am now fulfilling the instructions, the commandment that I got from my Creator, God told me to make efforts. I'm making those efforts now. I'm doing a mitzvah. I'm doing what Hashem asked me to do now. How amazing is that? <laughs> Ultimately, we don't get credit for the success get credit for the effort. If you may remember, several episodes ago, we came across a stunning idea. We discussed why is it that a person gets rewarded for a mitzvah for doing an act of overt holiness, whether it's sounding the shofar, eating the matzah, putting on tefillin, fixing a mezuzah, lighting Shabbat candles. Why do we get credit for the mitzvah if we believe that ultimately Whatever happens is only happening by the grace of God. And we could make many efforts and come up empty-handed. 
we learned that it's not for the end result that we are rewarded, but for making the effort, investing ourselves, doing our part, which hopefully, by the grace of God, comes to fruition, that is what we are rewarded for. My dear friends, Rabbeinu Bechaya is sharing something positively life-altering. He's telling you that when you spent a few weeks pursuing a particular deal and it went south, you didn't waste your time. As long as you did it with the right mindset. As long as you had the right kavanah. Because if your kavanah was, I have to make a living, I have to have success, I'm going to achieve this is my hunter's instinct, and I'm going to get the prize. Yeah, that's called idolatry. You just worshiped yourself. You convinced yourself that you are the master of your own destiny, that you are the power to be. It's not true. Hashem, God gives us. We are the recipients. But... When I make those efforts, if I do it because Hashem told me to do it, what are you working so hard for? Because I'm supposed to. Is that going to result in success? If Hashem wants it to. I don't know. Well, then why are you doing it for? Because it's the right thing to do. Because it's a mitzvah. Think about that. How liberating. How empowering. How uplifting. How positively transformational is that? It makes everything we do meaningful. As the Shara Betochen now continues, and he says, indeed, you must know that when you do what has to be done with the right intention, v'yihyeh niskar al kavanosi behem lelikim, he says, then you have profited had your profit. <laughs> Are you kidding? You profited because in doing the right thing with the right intention, you just fulfilled the will of God. That's the greatest thing any of us could do. Let me give you a lame example. Suppose your spouse asks you to do something for he or she. You know, we don't always like to do things we're asked to do. And you worked really hard. You toiled, you made the effort. In the end, you weren't successful because you were prevented from it. Does your spouse appreciate it? I hope the answer is yes. At least they should. Why? Because you cared. Because you wanted to do something nice for them. And that should be much more valuable than whatever it is you actually received. I was talking to a fellow recently. He told me, I, I'm not a writer, I can't write, he said to me. I don't write. He says, but I once bought a card for my parents and they kept it for, for decades. And I said to him, but you're not a writer. He said, because they knew that I spent hours and hours looking over the Hallmark cards until I found the right one. And maybe he said I added two words or a word just to make it 
the right thing. I had to find the right card that would say what I wanted to say. And I thought that was very profound. Because it's the effort that really counts. You know, we say, well, it's the effort that counts. No, 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 it's not a cliche. It's actually true. When you find out that somebody you love toiled, invested so much effort and grief and heartache in trying to help you, even if they didn't succeed, how gratifying is that? How edifying, how uplifting is it? It's huge. God says, it's all I asked of you. All I ever asked of you as the human being I created in my image says the Holy One, blessed be He, is make the efforts. And do it purposefully, mindfully. And rely on me. Trust in me. Because the world we live in is not amenable to this. Not on an organic level or natural way. The world that we live in, the reality that we live within, screams from all sides. He who works hard has success. He who is smart will prevail. He who is powerful and courageous shall be victorious. But none of that's true. Because so often the smart person fails. The valorous is not victorious. So, well, that's, you know, it's the exception to the rule. It doesn't change the facts. The facts are, even if the facts aren't so, we know the facts to be this way. You know, if it wouldn't be that, that way naturally, we wouldn't get credit for doing the right thing. But the Rabbeinu Shalelam wants, You put all that effort in. You have nothing to show for it. The Rabbeinu Shalelam says, what are you talking about? You have everything to show for it. You did this, You did this for God. You did this for me. You did it as an act of holiness. in your heart, your conscience. What were you looking for when you did this? God says, I don't care if it worked out. It wasn't going to work out anyway. I decided it wasn't going to work out. You don't get credit for it working out. But you get credit for making the effort and for doing it intentfully. Kamesha Kosov, as is written, this is a fascinating statement which is made in the book of Psalms. And Rabbeinu Bachai invokes it there. He says, Yegiyah Kapecha. Yegiyah Kapecha literally means the toil of your hands. As the Rebbe pointed out many times that when it comes to making a living, it shouldn't be the moyach and the lev. It shouldn't be our heart. Our mind should be involved in the study of Torah. Our heart should be involved in prayer. But the toil, the external. Kapecha means the external reality, not the essence. Don't define yourself by your career. Don't define yourself by your vocation. Don't identify with your occupation. Identify as a servant of Hashem who happens to be involved in one occupation, career, or vocation, or another. That's Yigiyah Kapecha. That's the emphasis on palm, on hand. But why Yigiyah? Rashi says, The person who benefits from, from his toil, 
What, did Rashi not know that we don't really benefit from our own toil? Chas v'sholem. And Rashi quotes the Gemara Meseches Brachas, Neuchel Shnei Lamas, he inherits two worlds. What does this mean? Rashi is quoting a Gemara Meseches Brachot on page 8, side A. The Gemara says, Amr Rebichia Barami. Rebichia Barami, the son of Ami, taught in the name of Ula. The person who benefits from the hard work invested is greater than the one who has reverence for heaven. Fortunate is the person who is respectful, reveres God. When the person benefits from the handiwork, the toil, the effort, the absolute exhaustion invested, he says, and that happens, it's good for you. You're fortunate and it's good for you. You're fortunate in this world. It's good for you. Goodness. Goodness isn't really found in this world. Goodness refers to inherent goodness. By the the person who has a sense of awe and reverence for heaven, it says, you inherit in the other world. Here, you get a double portion of benediction and divine recompense. Why? You don't even benefit from your handiwork. But the point is, that you invest that toil as an act of loyalty to Hashem. It's one thing for a person to pray and be mindful of God instead of mindless. There's plenty of people who come to the minion and are mindless. Sometimes it's you and me. So when we actually focus in our prayers and we speak to Hashem, it's a beautiful thing. That's good. It's good for you. It's good. It creates eternity. It engenders marvelous spiritual energy. When you study Torah, and instead of use it as a platform for self-expression, creativity, or ingenuity, you study Torah with a sense of subservience and awe. You're studying Hashem's Torah. You're a student, a recipient of Torah. That's called Yirei Shomayim, Yirei Elikim, Ashrei. You're fortunate. Tevloch, it's good for you. But when a person can be involved in the nitty-gritty of the world as we know it, and at the same time always be remembering that there is a God and it is God's will that you are now fulfilling, that's off the charts. That's the real Ashrech of That's what Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar means. Yegiyah kapecha kisecho. Ve'amru Rabbi Seinu. And our rabbis indeed said, V'chol ma'asecha, all of your efforts, all the things you do, yihiyu l'shem shomayim, should be for a heavenly purpose. A heavenly purpose. They may not redeeming, be redeeming in and of themselves. This is not to be confused with the idea of b'chol even though with the commentary here he sends you off to Lakutasikh is a totally different subject. It's not to be confused. This effort it does not have inherent value in and of itself necessarily. But I'm doing what I have to do because Hashem told me to. That's big. Now all of this presupposes 
that we were created from the very beginning to toil, to work hard. It's a beautiful thesis. It's uplifting and it's uh, phenomenal. But do you realize that it kind of contradicts something important we learned about in a previous episode? The balance of today's presentation is going to be to kind of synergize the message of this Torah teaching that the efforts we must make are an inherent part of who we are and what we learned previously that the efforts we have to make to earn a livelihood are the result of the sin, the original sin. Say, hey, one second. This Pasuk, Genesis 2.15, is before the sin. That means we were always built to work. But what about what we learned in the previous episode? I'll remind you. When Rabbeinu Bachai was telling us all about this hunting instinct, and we talked about the Gemara in the end of Mesechet Kiddushin, which says, did you ever see a, a deer involved in curing foods? you ever see a lion as a porter? Did you ever see a wolf, a fox, pardon me, behind the counter? So the Maharal said, and I quote, I shared this with you in the previous episode, They don't have to do work. They don't have to be involved in business. They each find their own sustenance. Without all these troublesome, burdensome, difficult, challenging collection of realities. The efforts that must be made to make a livelihood are only for humanity. Because of the tremendous vacancy, the deficiency created by virtue, the first sin. We had our livelihood. It was all ready and prepared for us. Adam and Eve blew it. If not for original sin, we wouldn't need any of this. Hmm. So all of this is just because we sinned. And yet, Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar seems to indicate that it's an inherent part of who we are. This idea of the Maharal can actually be traced to the words of our sages in the Sifri. In the Sifri, which is the Medrash Halacha that accompanies the book of Deuteronomy, in Parshas Ekev chapter 11, in the midst of a rather long section of commentary found in the 13th verse, we focus on the words of the second paragraph of Shema, where we hear about we must work, toil, make efforts to serve God. The Sifri says, and I quote, 
Ula avdai, zet Talmud. This refers to toil in Torah. Or, Eino yela avayda mamash. Maybe it means like what Rabbeinu Bachayrus talked about. Says the Sefri, Kishu Eimer, Veikech Hashem Elikim When God took the original human, Veyenichem Beganeden, He placed him Ganeden, Laavdul Shamra. He placed him there to work, to safeguard. Vechima Avayda. What kind of work was there? Lishaavar. Umashmira Lishaavar. What kind of work was there before, before the sin? What kind of safeguarding was there? This teaches us that the primary effort was supposed to be made in the arena of Torah study. The safeguard? That's mitzvahs. And just like the servitude in the Beis Hamikdash is called Avodah, as it says, the world stands on three things Torah, Avodah, and Gimilat Chasidim. And Avodah literally means the concept of. Efforts made in the Beit HaMikdash, the offerings. So, so too. Then the Sifri goes on and says, La But one second. The Sifri, Medrash HaLacha, just came along and said to us that the word, La those words are not talking about making a living. How could Rabbeinu Bachai argue with the Sifri? What the Maharal says seems to be in perfect keeping with the words of our sages. To be sure, this is not only found in the Sifri, but in fact, it is also found in the Gemara itself. The Gemara in Meseches Sanhedrin talks to us about a variety of different things. It's a, a fascinating potpourri of different subjects. So the Gemara seems to be, as is the Gemara's wont to do, going from subject to subject. The Gemara says on page Nuntes, Daf Nuntes, Amit Beis, page 59, side B, close to the bottom. The Gemara says, Rabbi Yehuda ben Tema Omer, the great and famous sage Yehuda, the son of Tema, said, Adam Harishon, the first human being, Mesev began Eden, reclined in Gan Eden Haya, the ministering angels fired up the barbecue. They were serving him. His burgers, his meat, and his steak. And they were taking the dregs out of the wine and making sure that his wine was clean, perfect. Engineering his wine for him so that he could be wined and dined. Wow. What happened? The snake noticed and he got jealous. And that's where the story of the serpent comes out. Now, obviously, this is referring to Adam Rishan. Before he sinned. Are you kidding? He was having a party. He had angels, a whole barbecue team, and a butler. Open bar, endless meat. Life was great. And he ate a stupid piece of fruit. I mean, that's what the Gemara says. Where's the, where's the, where's the bread? Forget where's the beef. We've got lots of beef. You've got to have some carbs too. It's not healthy. So in the Torah's Chaim it says, Lechem he didn't have to have Malachim for. Why? Because it says, That by the sweat of your brow you will eat bread. And therefore, 
There was no sweat of the brow prior to the sin. There was bread that was just growing. The Gemara Mesech Shabbos tells us, when Mashiach will come, the land of Israel is going to produce bagels and rolls. It's going to be fantastic. You're not going to have to work. You know how hard it is to make bread. You've got to harvest the wheat and you've got to separate the shaft and you have to grind the kernels and you have to mill the wheat and you have to cleanse the wheat. And then you have to finally mix it with water and you have to knead it, what the Gemara calls Sidura, the Pas. It's a labor-intensive kind of thing to do. Who needs it? Ah, it was only because of the sin that we have to work so hard. But initially, it was available for free. It was bread, bagels and pretzels that would come right out of the ground. And interestingly, it says, So, if we take a look in the commentaries, on that very verse, for example, the Ebenezer says, this refers to all the difficulty engaged and involved in making bread. Or whatever it is, like, you know, could be pasta. You have to work hard at harvesting, and then winnowing, and then grinding, and then you have to knead, and then you have to bake or cook. Like a Michael Behemus, the animals have a kitchen, they eat, they're just fine. They don't eat bread, they eat wheat, they eat the grass, and they're very happy. Why couldn't God just make the ground Sprout the things that we like to eat organically. Even organic people, I think they still eat bread. Now, what's going on over there? Rabbeinu Bechaya has this whole thesis. It's all about work. It's not about work. The work was later. That's a, that's a symptom of sin. It's a consequence of rebellion against Hashem. Radak says that this business of making bread from the furrows that have to be plowed, from the planting, and then the eventual harvest, and the winnowing, and then the separation. You know, this like chaff, the whole wheat is separated until you get the wheat separated from, and then you have to grind, and then you have to, 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 to chop up in small pieces, and then you have to knead, and then you have to bake. So he has even more descriptive terms than the Ibn Ezra, and as the Amek Dover says, We speak here about the burden of the bakery. All right, in that case, the Gemara seems to indicate there was beef, there was bread, there was wine, he had everything. Work, it's chilling, it's a great life. And he had to eat that dumb piece of fruit. What is going on here? This doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Okay, it has to make sense. Let me first share with you the words of Nachmanides, Ramban, in his commentary on Hashem placing him in Gan Eden Mikedem. So Ramban says, help me understand this. Who planted the trees? God planted the trees. So if God planted the trees, what was the human being expected to do? Why did the human being have to work on 
planting, working the garden. These are godly trees. He says, This is divine command. They must have been fantastic trees. Trees that would never get old. Trees that would never be decrepit. Trees that would never need any kind of work. Their roots would never die or shrivel. They don't need they don't need to be weeded, taken care of, pruned. They don't do these things. And Ramban asks a stunning question. He says, tell me something. If they needed to be worked on, so after the person or the people were driven from the Garden of Eden, who was working on the trees? God planted This is God's own planting. Nachmanides is paraphrasing the prophecies of Isaiah. And they would be as it says you would never see its foliage fade. You would never see it stop producing fruit. Imkain, if so, he says, Matam, what's the reason that God placed the Meganeden la'avda ulashamra? And he says something very interesting. He placed him there to grow, to plant, and to allow various grains to grow, cereals to grow, and then vegetables, herbs. Aromatic herbs. And then, after he planted those things, he was supposed to harvest those things. The kotzer, the tolash, the He was allowed then to harvest whatever he planted and enjoy it. And that, on a literal level, explains the grammar of the avda ulashamra. Because la avda ulashamra is feminine tense. But a gan, a garden, is masculine. The eights, the tree, is masculine. Why does it use the feminine tense? Ramban alludes to the idea of working with the ground. The ground is feminine. The adomo, adomo, soil is feminine. The Odom was Nilkachminho Adomo, the man, the original man and woman came from the soil which is feminine. In Kabbalah, soil represents Malchus. Malchus is feminine. So the text in the Torah that reads Avdullah Shamra refers not to the trees, but refers to planting the ground. So how does the words of Ramban work with the words of the Sifri? So take a look. Listen, take a listen here. The Or Achayim, the great Sephardic sage, originally from Morocco, who emigrated to the holy city of Yerushalayim. We're talking 17th century now. 17th, early 18th. Or Achayim, Rabbeinu Chaim Ibn Attar says something amazing in his commentary on Chumash. 
He says, La'avda ulishamra. What is going on here in Genesis 2, verse 15? What kind of guarding, he says. V'chagan tzarech la'oivid v'shoimer. Did the garden need a gardener? Did the garden need a watch person? Ha'emish is the truth. The facts of the matter contradict this. Loma yitzarech Who is he safeguarding it from? Meganovim, from thieves? Who, who is the thief? Who was the criminal element that you had to guard the garden from? Mahiyavayda, what is this work? And if it has to be worked, and he kind of alludes to something Nachman, and he says, he says, so who's been working on it for the last five and a half thousand years? Because we haven't been there. We're now 280 plus years after the Orachim wrote his work. So he says in his time, so it's 5,500 years since the garden has been empty. Who's been guarding it? And so, the Or Achayim, my dear friends, teaches us that all of this is a dogma. All of this is a paradigm. It's a representation of our spiritual work. Listen to the words that the Holy Or Achayim uses. Just as the soil needed to be worked on, he's following in the pathway of Rabbeinu, of Ramban, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Nachman. This is exactly what Ramban said. He planted the ground. He says, just as you needed to plant the ground, there was a hazra, and there was a hagshama. The Haitsi Muzin Ha'adam, the person was supposed to plant vegetables and grain and be able to enjoy this. So he says, Gam Shmir Midvarashim Afsidim. There could be things that might ruin the grain. You have to protect the grain so that it grows properly. Kemoikain, why is this being told to us? There's a Ganeiden. There is a Garden of Eden that has to be worked on today. And the Garden of Eden is Adma Sanafashot, is the soil of souls. Kiagufis Nigshemu, because the bodies have become crass. And as such, we now need to work not so much in the physical or literal sense, but we need to work on things in a spiritual sense. We have to work through the toil of Torah. And how do we know that the toil of Torah is like working the ground? Because Moshe Rabbeinu himself metaphorizes. Later on at the end in Deuteronomy, in Chumash Dvarim and Pashas Hazinu, he says, rasi. My words are like soft rain. Means Torah is like rain that enables that which is planted to grow. What are the seeds? The seeds are the positive mitzvahs. Then he brings down the words of the Navi, which we discussed in a previous episode, that the concept of tzedakah is like planting a seed in the ground where it dissolves, the actual act may dissolve. However, its sum is much greater than its parts. It results in extraordinary flowering and growth. And I shared with you a beautiful story. 
I don't remember if that was in this, this episode or we had the, the Hanukkah, the Love Lights Hanukkah episode, but I remember I shared with you, so we talked about this Pasuk, this idea. So says, you must know that when we talk about Sadaka, we are not only talking about Sadaka, Shakol, Mitzvah, Shayasha, Haodom, every single mitzvah you perform is like a seed. God is planting seeds for you when you do a mitzvah. And he says, what's the guard, the safeguarding? That's the negative mitzvahs. And he talks about, he says, well, negative mitzvahs can actually harm positive mitzvahs. It can't detract from your Torah. And he says, don't be so sure about that. Don't be so sure. Our sages tell us that sometimes a lot of negativity, a lot of darkness in your life can actually diminish the light of the mitzvah that's created. It's not so simple, he says. It's, it's sometimes Avedas that we do can have a detrimental negative effect. However, when a person lives a life of sin and a life of darkness, you can extinguish or darken the light. And he says, this is the love of the Lashamra. My friends, it's not a contradiction. There are many forms of work. There are many different kinds of effort. The, the, the human was created to work. His initial work was supposed to be primarily spiritual. He was supposed to plant the ground a little. He was supposed to do a little bit of work. Unfortunately, it unfolded very differently later on. Rabbeinu Bechaya sees the La'avdo L'Shamra of today as a continuation of the original La'avdo L'Shamra. He says, in the way things evolved due to our sin, now the La'avdo L'Shamra includes a tremendous amount of effort made in the pursuit of livelihood, but that's not intrinsically different than the La'avdo L'Shamra in the beginning. Oh, and by the way, it is quite possible that if a person invests the toil and effort in the pursuit of holiness, that Hashem will diminish the amount of pursuit and effort and toil in material things. Like it says, Kol HaMakabel, all of old Torah, if you accept upon yourself the yoke of Torah, I shared with you in a recent class this idea of the Zohar's words on the bricks and mortar of Mitzrayim as being a euphemism for the efforts we make in the study of Torah. Let's make it simple. We were built to work, not sun ourselves, not relax. We are built to toil and to expend effort. And there was some actual effort that needed to be done even before the sin of Eitz Hadas. It's just that it turned much worse. Instead of a little bit of planting, now we have It's like so abundantly obvious and clear if you only take the time to look at the sources themselves. Here's a, a parallel idea. It's a parallel idea. A mimer from the Rebbe Tzemach Tzedek. It's an Eira Teira in Parshas Chukas. It's page 816. He brings down a question that the Zohar says. The Zohar says that the Torah precedes creation by 2,000 years. So the Zohar says, if so, how can it say Adam Kiyomos that a person when he dies? We know that the whole idea of death is a result of Chet Eitz So what kind of death would there be then? 
How can the Torah talk about death if death is the result of Chetet Sadas? Death is brought into the world through the sin of Adam and Eve. And the Rebbe de Tzemach Tzedek says that there is a commentary on the Zohar called Migdash Melech, and the content of his answer is even though it speaks about death and Torah, Torah that existed before the sin of the gold of the of the of the, of the original sin of Eitzadas, he says it doesn't it didn't have to be actual death. It could have been a removal. It could have been a disappearance into a higher realm. It didn't have to be death as we know it. And he explains that this is like called in Hebrew his almus. We can't see it, he says, like the malachim are saying, they're not able to see the Shekhinah. It dissipated from before them. They're blocked from seeing it. You can't see it anymore. Imagine you could see radio waves and then you couldn't see it anymore. You can't see it. There are certain ultraviolet lights that the eye, naked eye can't see. Doesn't mean it's not there. In your realm it's not there. And he says, this is actually spoken about by the Rabbeinu Bachaya II when he says, Kabbalah es HaKodesh. That he says that sometimes when holiness is concealed or covered over. And with this says that Tzemach Tzedek we could explain an extraordinary medrash in the beginning of the book of Exodus. Where it says, Vayomas Yosef. Yosef died. So the medrash says, Afalpi shames Yosef. Although Joseph died. True. The Echov and his brothers, their God is not dead. Joseph is dead. His brothers are dead. But God is not dead. Wow. That's good news. He says, what? How could you speak about death when you speak about the source of all existence? The primordial eternity. How could you use this terminology, death? What does it mean? What do our sages mean to convey with this? And the Tzemach Tzedek goes on to explain that it means that they don't think that Shechina isn't active. Don't think it's not visible. May not be visible to our naked eye. When you see a tzaddik, you can see the Shechina, so to speak. And when the tzaddik is no longer physically here, it doesn't mean that God's presence isn't here. He speaks about later on the idea of of, 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 of the story of Purim. This is the story of Anoichi Haster, Aster, Pone Bayemohu. God says, I conceal my face. Hashem is with us. You are a father. Hashem is here with us. We just don't see it. We don't see it. He explains with this the idea the Mishnah says, when you're a hundred, it's Ki'ilu Meis Ve'avarobatomana'ilam. A hundred years old? Ha! You're dead already. That's nice to tell somebody his 100th birthday. I've seen a bunch of people lately on Facebook that turned 101, 102, 103. Say, happy birthday! How does it feel to be dead? Seriously? So the Tzemach Tzedek explains, it means, Ki'ilu meis, it doesn't mean, Not death in the negative connotation. A positive connotation. That you're able to exist in a higher frame of existence. When a person has toiled and avoided Hashem for a hundred years, you've perfected yourself. And you're able to rise into a higher frame of consciousness. It's a tremendous privilege to live past the age of a hundred. And this is the idea, and he goes, there's a lot of very rich verbiage over here. The point he makes is that death didn't have to be the kind of experience as we know it today. There's a mimer, a Hasidic discourse, 
from the Rebbe Rashab, Rabbi Shalom Dover, the fifth Rebbe, who was delivered in the last Parshas Chukas of his terrestrial life in the summer of 1919. And he quotes this Maimer of the Tzamach Tzedek, he quotes this Migdash Melech, he quotes the answer on the Zohar, and he uses fascinating new terminology to describe it. He says there's what we call Shvirat HaKelem. In the language of Kabbalah, we talk about a shattering of vessels. And when the vessels are shattered, then their sparks are, so to speak, embedded within the strata of existence. He says, but the idea of the shattering of vessels didn't have to mean a separation of proverbial body and soul. It could have been elevation of body. He says, the, what, do you know what the metaphor for this is? He says, when Moses went up the mountain, what happened to the body of Moses? He says, the body of Moses wasn't dead on the ground. The body of Moses was elevated into a spiritual reality. It didn't have physical needs anymore. He says, this is, represents elevation. Death is demotion. This is talking about elevation. He says, Avil Hisalmos, when a neshama elevates Ke'eliyahu, Elijah the prophet, disappears in a flash of light. Euphemistically called the chariot of fire. Moshe Bahar, this is not a tragedy. It's a Aliyah Gedoyla. It's that a Yid's neshama worked with the body to the point that he refined the body, that the body is able to melt into a photonic existence. It's not nuclear physics in a dense way. It's become refined. It's photons. And from there, from there, it continues to evolve into a higher existence. A kli, which is mekabel, a vessel that can receive the highest energies. He said, this is, if we had merited, if there wouldn't have been that original sin, then we would have had, instead of death, which meant a demotion of the body into a lifeless shard, that has to return to earth. Instead, it would represent the idea of weightlessness. It would represent the idea of total transformation, elevation of the bodily reality into a higher spiritual form. Please don't ask me to describe what exactly this means. I've never seen it. We don't know what this means. Only one man experienced it. His name was Elijah. The Rebbe goes on to speak about the idea of Moshe Rabbeinu's body needing to be invested in the ground or buried. And he says, really, Moshe Rabbeinu Elio are not different. There's a reason that Moshe Rabbeinu's body had to be buried. Moshe Rabbeinu wanted to fulfill the idea of offer Tashuv. But the body is not an ordinary body. And it doesn't simply decompose into dust. Tzaddikim remain whole afterwards. The body is elevated. The body no longer needs to be fed, to be nourished with physical food anymore. So this is what we're talking about. And just as it is with death, we can all understand so easily that the, the toil, the effort that we're speaking of, that effort is there from the very beginning. Unfortunately, we didn't merit for the effort to remain in a lofty way. And so it had to become in the pursuit of a livelihood as we know it today. Consider this a fascinating mimer of the Friedrich Rebbe, the previous Rebbe. In the summer of 1931, he speaks about the, the Chet of Adam Arishan. It's my modern contrasen, page 383. The Friedrich Rebbe says, What does it mean? What does it mean when, how could Adam Arishan do a sin? 
How could he sin? How could he go against God? How could such a thing be? There had to be something that precipitated sin. There had to be the possibility for sin. Where was the possibility for sin? And he says, The precipitation, the reason, not the direct cause, but that which allowed for the possibility of this rebellion against God, is this proverbial shrinking of the moon. Where instead of becoming being a star, generating its own effulgence and light, Instead, it became merely a reflector, reflecting the light, the solar light. And this idea of miyotayarech, he says, chisarin zev represents chisarin ha'or, that there was an ambient light that the world was bathed in, and then that light was taken from us. This chisarin is the marker lechet. It's the origin for sin. And he says, ultimately, in the language of Kabbalah, this refers to Tzimtzum Harishain, to God's original concealment. And then the Friedrich Rebbe says, one second, the Tzimtzum Harishain, the God's hiding himself was for the purpose of revelation. Indeed, he says, God conceals his light so that his light could be revealed. That is true. However, for the time being, God's presence is concealed from us. And why did God do that? God does that. Sha'akavona is that should be gilui er. The kavona is that light should be revealed, but it should be ayedei avoda bekoyach atzmam avoda, my friends. Effort, toil. We needed to make it happen. Instead, Adam took it the other way and made it much more onerous, painful, and difficult. Hakavon el yena, the ultimate divine purpose is that the hamshacha of brachar sashefa, that the beneficence that comes from God should be ayede avoida, should be through effort, through toil, which is primarily the fulfillment of mitzvahs. But chas v'shalom, when we didn't do that, we didn't do the tzayin yishol we didn't do the will of Hashem. Oz yeschas v'shalom minis v'ikuvim begilei hashefa, then. There are problems. We block the light from coming through our sins. If we are blocking beneficence that's supposed to be coming our way, it's because of our sins. It's not because we didn't work hard enough in our business. It's not because we didn't put enough toil into making the vessel. It's because we didn't do enough in the spiritual realm. Do you see where this is going? I mean, I'm, I'm touching on very nuanced and very sophisticated, deep ideas. I'm trying to convey a simple truism to you. And that is when Rabbeinu Bechaya talks about la'avdo la'shamra, it doesn't have to mean the toil as we know it today. Toil. Unfortunately, that toil had to metamorphose into something much more onerous. The novelty of Rabbeinu Bechaya, the Shara Betochen, is it's never divorced from its origin, though. It just took on a different form. Here's something quite fascinating. In Chelek Tesvov, the, sec- the fourth Sicha on Parshas Lech Lecha. I shared the, the, some of the contents of this edited talk a while back with you. Avraham Avinu came to the land called Canaan and he was impressed because the people were industrious, not decadent. So the Rebbe says, why, why was that so meaningful? Why was that so important? The Rebbe says, because a person was born to toil. And then the Rebbe asks, 
Odom la'amoyullah, the person was born to toil. From the very beginning, before sin, a person was born to toil. Vibal derebishter is etzimatev. If God is good, the essence of goodness, the teva hatev, the nature of goodness is lahitiv to do good. Why did he make creation require effort and toil? Not the sin, not Adam and Chava. Hashem made it that way. As the men shall daffen onkum and so om of the yigia, that a person should have to work to earn his blessings. And then the Rebbe goes into a reason, all the things we can't say. Well, we can't explain it one way or the other. And I don't want to focus on that, but I want to take, take you straight to the explanation. The beard in them, the explanation is as follows. Amitius v'tachlis hatevis, the greatest expression of goodness, is as their mensch, so their greichen, that a person should feel accomplishment and achievement. Not only that a person should be able to reach the highest level of a created entity. No, furthermore, it becomes as if we become godlike when we make effort and toil. We become godlike. We become, in the language of our sages in Masechet Shabbat, in both page 10 as well as page 119, we become, as it were, euphemistically, God's partner. So we were always created to work. We were always created to toil. And in doing so, we become a partner with God. So next time you have to work and toil, knock yourself out, and you say, what am I doing this for? And the answer is because Hashem wants you to be his partner. But I worked so hard and it didn't result. You do your work. Hashem will give you his part. And that's your partnership with God. It's like not just a mitzvah, a partnership with God. My efforts and my toil are my part, and God does his part. And we're in this together. How incredible is that? <laughs> How absolutely uplifting, empowering, and liberating that we become God's partners as long as we do these things mindfully. To further address this idea, of the difference before and after the sin of the golden calf. I'll finish with a footnote in an edited talk which is found in Lakuta Sichas Chelek It's a transcript of the Fabrengen that the Rebbe delivered on Shabbos Parshas Miketz, which was the last day of Hanukkah in the year. Uh, it was late December 1986. And the Rebbe, on page 429 of Lakuta Sichas, of that volume, in footnote 15, he speaks about the difference between the beginning of creation and after the sin of the golden calf. He says, the sin of the, of the, of the tree of knowledge. He says that the tree of golden, of, of the sin of the tree, original sin, resulted in that the world became mole klipais v'sitrachra, that every iota of our existence became filled with extraneous husks, it's filled with toxins. Everything has to be now cleansed. Everything has to be refined. Nothing good can simply be extracted or extrapolated. There is garbage mixed into everything. 
think of gold ore or silver or zinc, whatever it is that comes out of the ground that's filled with soil and silt and garbage and, and rocks and it has to be refined. Think of the gasoline that's pulled out of the, tar, the sands, the tar sands, and it has to be burned off. The toxins have to be removed so that it doesn't destroy the engine of the car that it's actually powering. The Rebbe says there's a diok here. Mole klipas, filled. The filled, that only came at the end of creation. But that wasn't the original intention, so to speak. Betchilas habria, there was the mitzias of klipa. There was extraneous parts, but it was like the klipa hashoymer lepri. It was like the peel of the banana. It was like the shell of the walnut. It could easily be broken. And then you take out the fruit, the nut, the edible part. But now, over there, first it was Klippa and Kedusha were separate realms. So you still had the possibility of doing the wrong thing, but you knew you were crossing a line, and then we end up in a world where there's chaos and confusion. Everything's mixed together. This is the world we live in now. It's Mali Klippa, so wherever we look, there's a challenge. A person wants to pray with sincerity, and all of a sudden there's an arrogance and a sense of, of self-aggrandizement attached to it. I just wanted to daven a little. I want to study Torah. And right away there's a jealousy attaches itself to it. In every single step we take, the Yetzirah is there. So frustrating. That's the result of the sin. Now it actually locks horns and tangles until Elam Haza became Elam HaKlipas, the world of Klippas, because there is no part of our world that doesn't have negativity in it. So there was work. Hakavana, the Rebbe says, Yeshleimer Shakavana, the Nesava Chulu, Shiyasava Oilam, a world should be created, a world that has an Efsharius, a possibility, an Alulius, even a predisposition, Lara, Oilam Haza, Agashmi, Vachumri Mamash, a world that is proverbially speaking devoid of God's overt presence, a low world, a world where God's light is concealed. And yet, this concealment was not felt in such an acute fashion, in a manner of godliness mixed in with evil or that which conceals godliness and now after that sin Avaida Saddam was always to make a our job was always to make a dwelling place for God only the rules became radically altered the, the, the chessboard became radically shifted with the sin of Adam and Chava and so in closing Everything Rabbeinu Bechaya says is exactly so. Because what we do today is not inherently disparate. It's not divorced from the original of the Ulashamra. It's unfortunately metamorphosed into a much more difficult and onerous and challenging mission. But essentially, it's the same mission. We have a job to be Hashem's partners. The efforts that we make, not the destination. It's not a means to an end. Those efforts are an end into themselves because it allows you and I to be in a partnership with Hashem, not only when we study or pray, not only when we fulfill an actual mitzvah, but when we do the most ordinary, menial, mundane things, and when we expend the toil that we are supposed to 
by instruction of Hashem's Torah, in the pursuit of a livelihood, that too, as long as we have the right mindset, becomes an act of holiness and partnership with Hashem Yisbarach. To me, this is an amazing idea, so uplifting, so empowering, so inspirational. I hope you found it that way too. Please like, share, and if you haven't yet, I'd appreciate it if you could please subscribe. YouTube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Let's get the word out. Let's elevate, inspire, and uplift people all over so that we can actually live the way Hashem wants us to. And as a result, Emir Hashem, to bring an end to a world that is filled with klipa and to usher in a new world that's filled with goodness and godliness without the toil, the effort, and the challenges in material things. Our Avedis Hashem will continue as we go Mechayel El in knowing Hashem and deepening our relationship with God with the coming of Mashiach. Bimheira will be Amen speedily and in our days. Amen. Thank you so much for joining today. I really do appreciate it and I look forward to seeing you back. God bless you all. Have a wonderful day.